But when Pastor Adam asked me to preach this message, he told me to feel free to jump into other passages beyond Galatians 4. And so as I reflected and prayed about that, I kept coming back to Romans chapter 8. And why is that? Well, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British pastor of the last century, actually was a medical doctor, was assistant to the royal family's physician, and was on track to become that. And he met Jesus. And he left his medical profession and became a pastor. And he became one of the greatest Bible expositors of the 20th century. And this is what he says about Romans 8. He writes, the theme of Romans 8 is the assurance of a Christian's salvation. It is the absolute security of the final perseverance of all who have been justified by Jesus Christ. And Lloyd-Jones, by the way, got so excited about Romans chapter 8, he went on to preach in his series on the book of Romans, 77 messages just from this chapter. I'll set you at ease. I'm only going to preach one, okay, this morning. That's all I'm going to do. So Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, through the end of the chapter, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and a reminder that this is the Word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor any depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I pray that this morning, as we look into this passage, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wondrous things in your word, and that your spirit would do a work in all of our hearts, a work that only he can do, for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. You know the expression, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Well, I couldn't help but think of that expression when I reflected on where we've been with in this series, the gifts of Christmas. We started with the gift of redemption. When you think about it, that God to send his own son to suffer a violent death on the cross as our substitute, taking the punishment upon himself for our sin and rebellion against him. Wow, what an amazing gift that is. And then the second gift, adoption. That God just didn't stop with redeeming us. He then took us into his own family. We're his children, sons and daughters, and we're looking forward to this great inheritance that will one day be fully ours. So thank you, Roger. Where are you, Roger? 
Roger, I, okay, thank you for sharing and reminding of just how precious the gift of redemption is, and thank you, Adam, for reminding us of the gift of adoption. This morning, the third gift, the gift of assurance. How many of you are fans of the Peanuts gang, also known as Charlie Brown and Company? You know, I, I, I think Snoopy is my favorite character. You know, one thing about Snoopy, he aspires to be a great writer. So he's always up on top of his doghouse with a typewriter. And so he was doing that one day, and he's typing out and starting his story with, it was a dark and stormy night. Well, Lucy comes along. You know Lucy. She's not afraid to speak her opinion. She says, Charlie Brown, you can't start a story with that line. Everybody knows good and happy stories start with the line, once upon a time. And then she walks off. So Snoopy scratches behind his ears. You know, dogs do that. And he puts a new piece of paper in the typewriter, and he starts typing. And this is what he typed. Oops. It was, once upon a time, it was a dark and stormy night. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, John hasn't preached for a long while. He's, what's this got to do with assurance? What, I, that's what I'm, well, here's what it has to do with assurance. Unfortunately, too many Christians don't enjoy the gift of assurance. And because of that, they don't have peace, they don't have joy, they go through dark and stormy times in their lives. And I know that's true because over the years I've counseled many a Christian who doesn't have the assurance in their salvation. And now, to be honest, I think all of us struggled with that from time to time. When you think about it, we all fall into sin again and again and are confessing sin again and again. And, you know, we have this enemy of our soul, Satan, and he comes along and he points his finger at us. He goes, you're not a true Christian, you're a fake. Or when trials come our way and we suffer, Satan comes along and whispers, hey, John, if you were really a child of God, do you think your Father in heaven would allow you to go through this kind of pain and suffering? So we struggle. But we can know, can we not, that we are truly in the Savior's grasp. 1 John 5, 11 to 13, this is the testimony God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, what's that next word? Know that you have eternal life. And friends, it is so important to know that, to have that assurance. Because as one of my mentors from afar, J.I. Packer, writes in his classic book, Knowing God, he says, there is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance, full assurance that they have known God and that God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. So well said, J.I. Well, this morning we're going to go through Romans 8, 31 to 39. And in this passage, through a series of questions, 
He reminds us, the Apostle Paul does, of four rock-solid realities which show us that we could not be more secure than we are right now in Christ if we are trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. Rock solid. You know, sometimes you say, if something's really certain, you say, well, it's written in granite. These realities are even better than that because they're written for us in the word of God. But before he gets to these four realities, in verse 31, what does he do? He starts with this introductory question. Well, what shall we say to these things? Well, what are the these things? Well, they are the things that he's been talking about here in chapter 8 and probably previously in, the, in this long letter. But we see, for example, in Romans 8, 1 and 2, he t one of the these things is the gift of redemption. Because what does he say? There is therefore now, right now, present tense, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Set you free, that's redemption. And then Romans 8, 14 to 17, the gift of adoption. For all who are led by the spirit of God are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That sounds familiar, right? We just read that. Adam just read that for us in Galatians 4. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. That's the gift of adoption. And then finally, the these things refers to the verses just prior to our passage, Romans 8, 31, or Romans 8, 28 through 30. In Romans 8, 28, we read a very familiar verse. People quote it all the time, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So what is God's purpose? Paul tells us. In the very next two verses, for those, and, and some call this the golden chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, did you notice that last word? What's the tense? It's past tense, right? But you know, I'm looking out over this room. I see a lot of good people. But I don't see any glorified people. Okay, we're not there yet. But Paul uses the past tense because in Paul's mind, because he knows what God's up to, it's a done deal. Now, this word foreknew, God foreknew. A group of people. What does that mean? Does that mean he's looking down the corridor of time and he goes, oh, John Smith, when he's 15 years, 16 years of age, he accepts the gospel. So I'm going to choose him. That's not what foreknow means here. It almost means, it, it really does mean to forelove. It's to set his love upon a people. Just what we see in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. When Moses said to the people of Israel, God's chosen people, it was not because you were more numbered than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
So why did God set his love on them? Because the Lord loves you. And he does the same thing with the church. In Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, even as he, God the Father, chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So God sets his love upon us. He then marks our destiny. He predestines us. Then he calls us. He justifies us and glorifies us. Bottom line, what is God's purpose? To finish what he started in eternity past for his people. Paul understood this in the opening words of his letter to the church of Philippi, Philippians 1.6. He said, and I am sure, convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will do it, won't he? So, how can we know with any degree of certainty that that's truly the case? That he will, God will finish what he started. That he will follow through on those gifts of redemption and adoption and all the blessings that flow to us, eventually getting us to a point where he conforms us totally to the image of his son, ultimately brings us into glory and the full inheritance that is ours. Well, Paul answers that with these questions. And, and by the way, there are so many questions in this passage. <laughs> so more than in any other passage I'm aware of, and so concise. But as we read through Paul's questions, and as I read through them this week in preparation for this message, I just couldn't help but think about the words of our good shepherd that are recorded for us in John 10. What does Jesus, our good shepherd, say? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So here in this passage, Paul's going to give us four rock-solid realities that assure us that we will always be firmly in the grip of our good shepherd. So here's the first, Romans 8, 31, reality number one, nothing can ever derail God's purpose for us, nothing. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if Paul had simply asked the question, who can be against us? Well, we could come up with a long list of those who oppose us, right? And things that oppose us, the unbelieving world opposes us. The fallen creation and all the suffering it brings opposes us. Satan, our arch enemy, and his many, many multitudes of minions oppose us, are against us. Indwelling sin, which is a strong adversary, is against us. And death, our final enemy, is against us. But Paul just doesn't ask that question. He prefaces the question with, if God is for us. And the if there, it really means since. And so we read, since God is for us, who can be against us? Since God has set his love upon us, chosen us, 
predestined us, called and justified us, he has shown himself to be on our side. James Boyce in his commentary on the book of Romans uses an illustration of an old scale like this one. And he suggests, why don't we put on the right side some peanut shells representing all, that, all these things that oppose us. And then on the other side, we're going to put an iron anvil. And the moment we set it on and let go, it crashes to the table. And what happens to all those peanut shells? They just fly into the wind. Boy says, nothing can defeat us if the almighty God of the universe is on our side. Let me ask you a question. What's the reaction of God Almighty when all the nations of the earth assemble together in opposition to him? Man, if I, you know, if I saw a mob of people come into my house and there were a huge multitude, well, I'd, normally I'd run into the basement. We don't have a basement, so I don't know if, <laughs> I just don't know what I'd do. But you know what God does? Psalm chapter, Psalm 2, verse 4. This is what we're told. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. Because as Isaiah the prophet reminds us in Isaiah 40, that the nations are like a drop in the bucket in comparison to God. Do you ever put one little drop into a bucket? If you do... I challenge you to do this sometime. Just take an eyedropper if you have one. If you don't have one, I have them for sale. I'll give you, you know, three for a dollar. So, but if you put a little drop in a bucket, you turn that bucket over, are you going to get that drop out? It's, it kind of like gets consumed. Well, the nations, all the nations, Isaiah says, are like a drop in the bucket. That's how great our God is. So reality number one, listen friends, be assured that nothing can ever derail God's purpose for us because God is for us. Since he is for us, who can be against us? We are secure in him. Reality number two, nothing can ever stifle God's generosity toward us. Verse 32 he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, if Paul had asked simply the question that will he not also, will he not graciously give us all things? Well, how would we know with any amount of certainty that he would do that, that he would follow through on that promise? But because I don't know about you, but you know, I've got some problems in my life. I have needs in my life. And I know you do too. And sometimes those problems are just little problems. Like school buses stopping on the way to work. There's a school bus on Pitney Road that stops, stops at an apartment complex. It's one stop for all these apartments. And all these middle school and high school kids are getting on the bus. And some of them could care less that you're sitting behind for five minutes waiting to get on your way because they're walking like this. Hey, oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. And they're talking. I wish they'd just start climbing in the windows and then we could get on our way. But that's just a little problem. Then there's bigger problems. 
bigger problems. You know, I, I talked to Lester about his brother, and it's kind of a really sudden thing. And then I talked to Sue Thomas, and her sister just died. Same scenario. And, and that's pain. There's all these problems. So how can we be sure that this is true? That God will give us graciously all things. What, where does Paul point in verse 32? He points to the cross, doesn't he? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him us up, up for us all. He points to the cross. And he argues from the greater to the lesser. If God gave us the greatest gift he could ever give, the life of his own son, well, certainly he'll give us the lesser gifts through his son. John Stott, great British statesman, since God has already given us the supreme and costliest gift of his own son, how can he fail to lavish every other gift upon us? He won't fail. We can count on him. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. So friends, be assured, nothing can ever stifle God's generosity toward us. God loves to give. Loves to give. And he's our father. We have a generous father. Reality number three. Nothing can ever frustrate God's acceptance of us. In verse 33 and verse 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. You see, when God justifies us, to justify means to declare righteous. We don't become righteous, but we're declared righteous in his sight. And it's not with our own righteousness but with the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ, his own son. You see, when we trust Christ, when we come to him with the empty hands of faith, knowing we can never get right with God based on our own merit, based on our own good deeds, our own righteousness, which Isaiah said are as filthy rags before God. So we come to him and we ask him to forgive us and to save us. We ask him to do that. He will do that because what happens? A great exchange takes place. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5.31 where he says, For our sake he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus lived a perfect life, never once disobeyed his Father, never once rebelled against his Father's will. But he, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what's the great exchange? The great exchange is Christ gets our sin and pays the just penalty for it. And in exchange, we get his righteousness. Friends, that is so freeing. We're in a spiritual battle. We don't think about it often. I don't think about it often. I, I think we need to think about it more. Read Ephesians 6. But we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And we have, and I mentioned them before, our arch enemy, Satan. And Satan 
is called the accuser of God's people in Revelation 12.10. So here it is, the courtroom of heaven, God the judge, and in strolls Satan, the untiring chief prosecutor against God's people. And he's always bringing accusations concerning us before God. And now often, as far as we are concerned, as we live our lives on planet Earth, he often comes and accuses us through our consciences. For example, he comes to me after I've confessed a sin. And he goes, John, how could you commit that sin again? You just confessed it yesterday. And the day before, you confessed it three times. And you call yourself a Christian? Fine Christian you are. Look at what you've done. Look at what you are. And we get that kind of an accusation. But Paul makes it crystal clear here that through the work of Christ, his death on our behalf, his resurrection, that we are justified. God justifies us when we come to him by faith alone in Christ alone. He justifies us, declares us righteous. And any accusation Satan throws at us will not stick. But Paul adds another thought here in these verses when he adds the reality that who, that Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Speaking of that, I love this verse. Hebrews 7.25, such a comforting verse. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for, him, for them. He saves to the uttermost. Isn't that great? I mean, we sin big time. Sometimes we even sin, every sin is horrendous in the sight of God, but even in our eyes, we do horrible things. And God, Jesus doesn't say, God the Father doesn't say, hey, there's a line right here. That sin, you just crossed the line. There is no line because Jesus saves to the uttermost. And he is interceding at God's right hand. I just love the quote from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, when he writes these words. He knows us, that's Christ he's talking about, knows us to the uttermost, and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender. And part of Christ's tender care for us, friends, is he is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and he is there interceding for us. When Satan, the chief prosecutor, comes by and says, oh, that's John Smith, right? Jesus goes, whoa, wait a minute. And what does the Father see on his hands? The nail prints of the cross. He intercedes for us. So friends, be assured that nothing can ever frustrate God's acceptance of us. And then lastly, and this reality is kind of what all the other three are built on. 
But nothing can ever separate us from God's love for us. It can't happen. Verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now listen to this list. He lists tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And then he adds this. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That, by the way, is a quote from Psalm 44, verse 12. So what's Paul getting at there? When you look at that list of things, the tribulation, the distress, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the danger, Paul experienced all those as he went about on mission for Christ, planting churches throughout the Roman Empire in the midst of great opposition. And then he mentions sword. Well, that's a reference to martyrdom. Now, when, obviously when he wrote this, he hadn't experienced that yet, but it was coming. And we're, we know that he was executed for his faith. He was a Roman citizen. He would not have been crucified. Most likely, he would have been beheaded. So, what about all these things? Will they separate us? What does Paul say, verse 37, the very first word? He goes, no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And I thought about that, more than conquerors. You know, I'm leading my army into battle. And we conquer the enemy. So I'm a conqueror. How do I become more than a conqueror? In fact, I've read a couple of English translations translate this as super conquerors. And I think Paul's point, he just wants to drive it home. Look, we will always be on the winning side with Christ. Always. So we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, verse 38. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. But I think that sums it all up, doesn't it? We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is so, so important. James Boyce puts it this way. Next to the bare facts of salvation, the greatest lesson a Christian can learn is that nothing can separate him or her from the love of Jesus Christ, which is the love of God. And then he uses this analogy. Like a mountain climber ascending a dangerous precipice behind his guide, secured only by a rope, and I'm just saying I'd never be in that position to begin with, the Christian walks through life secured by the stout cord of God's love. Because the way is treacherous, any believer may slip and fall, and I would add, but never fall away. But a disciple of Jesus Christ is secure because every Christian is bound to God by a gracious, we can't earn it, don't deserve it, unchanging, eternal, and indestructible love. So friends, be assured, be assured that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question, so you don't have to answer, raise your hands. But how many of you love to be loved? Isn't it, it it's so, feels so good in the deepest parts of our soul to know that there's someone who loves us. We have eight grandkids. And I'm telling you, these grandkids, how, how do you express love? Oftentimes, you give a hug, right? Okay. But some of our older grandkids, I say, hey, come give Papa a hug. So they come over and they go, I go, that's no hug, so I'll just grab them, and I'll give them a bear hug, and I lift them off the floor. Well, I used to lift them off the floor. Some of them are too big to do that. 
But our youngest grandchild, who will turn eight on New Year's Eve day, Lucas, he loves to give hugs, doesn't he? Not just one, but he's leaving our house. He gives Grammy a hug, and then he'll give her another hug. Then he'll come over and give me a hug, and he'll give her another couple hugs. And maybe he'll give me a, I don't know, she always gets more hugs, but, <laughs> but I don't care. I get that hug, and I go, he loves me. It's great to know that God loves us and nothing could ever separate us from his love. So I would encourage you this week, just go through this passage and remind yourself and reflect on these four rock-solid realities. Nothing can ever derail God's purpose for us. That means one day, if we're trusting Christ, all of us will be in glory together coming into our full inheritance. Nothing, secondly, can ever stifle God's generosity toward us. Nothing can ever shortcut. He, he's a giving God. He loves to be generous, and he will. Thirdly, nothing can ever frustrate God's acceptance of us. We're justified. If we're justified, we will be glorified. And then nothing can ever separate us from God's love for us. Reflect on those realities. Let them encourage your soul and warm your heart and firm up your assurance. Two closing quotes. Oops, got ahead of myself. The first one, John Stott again. This is so spot on. Our con and this is important. Our confidence is not in our love for him. If it were, we wouldn't have any assurance to speak of because it's frail, fickle, and faltering. But, his, but it's in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints needs to be renamed. It is the doctrine of the perseverance of God with the saints. And then our friend Alistair Begg says, writes, you can walk through the peaks and valleys of life with the assurance you are loved by the one who made all things and directs all things. And because you never had to win his love, you can never lose it. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so.